Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. I'm J.F. Martell, and welcome to the last episode of Weird Studies for 2020. I'll abstain from the usual remarks about how effed up this year has been, because the truth is that here on Weird Studies, it's been rather nice. For us, the show has been a shelter from the storm, and judging from the messages we get, the same seems to have been true for a lot of our listeners. We hope you'll be back with us on January 6th, when we ring in the new year with an episode devoted to Ishmael Reed's phantasmagoric novel, Mumbo Jumbo. Recently, a listener wrote us asking about the books, movies, and music that shaped the whole thought world we explore on the show. Phil and I responded with posts to our Patreon page, which incidentally, I encourage you to check out because where would we be without our patrons? Phil's post, titled Influences, was all about the kind of stuff that's so influential that you wouldn't think of including it on an essential works list because it shaped the deep structure from which interests develop rather than the interests themselves. My approach was less imaginative, and I started drawing up lists of material that continues to influence the way I think about art, philosophy, and the weird, the stuff I wish everyone would read. And that became rather stressful until I finally decided to limit my list of recommendations to three titles, all books. These would be my supernovas, works without which I wouldn't be doing this show. They are, drumroll, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, Tante Miyasu's After Finitude, and Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean's 1994 graphic novel, The Tragical Comedy and Comical Tragedy of Mr. Punch. And that happens to be the book we're talking about today. Hopefully, by the time we're finished you'll agree that this comic should be considered foundational in the non-existent field of weird studies. Now, Neil Gaiman is already known and loved by many of our listeners. In fact, an episode treating one of his works feels long overdue. Those who are lucky enough to have experienced his epic comic book series Sandman, which bears only an imaginal relation to the E.T.A. Hoffman story discussed in episode 86, will also be familiar with the work of Gaiman's collaborator, Dave McKean, who designed all those memorable Sandman covers. In the 90s, Gaiman and McKean made a few graphic novels whose innovations and deviations changed the medium forever. But all those signal-to-noise and violent cases would both make for brilliant Weird Studies episodes. For me, Mr. Punch is in a league of its own for the sense of place it imparts, the emotion it elicits, and the games it plays. The title refers to Punch and Judy, a traditional puppet play which British children of all ages have enjoyed and endured now for centuries. A character in the graphic novel calls Punch and Judy the greatest, oldest, wisest play there is. Much of what follows is an attempt to figure out why and how this is true. As far as Gaiman and McKean's take is concerned, it may have something to do with childhood, with the sixth sense that childhood imparts and adulthood tries to take away. Children may not live in a separate world, but they do live in a different version of our world, one that conceals from them what is revealed to us, and reveals to them much that we can't see. Recently, the Canadian actor and director Aaron Poole, 
a truly visionary artist, and I'm not just saying that because he's a friend of mine, made a short film which, more than any other I know of, captures this magical and terrible mystery that is childhood. It's called Oracle. You can watch it for free at shortoftheweek.com, and I urge you to do so before or after you listen to this episode. So, dear listener, it looks like you have your work cut out for you this holiday season. Read or reread Gaiman and McKean's graphic novel, check out Aaron's marvelous short, enjoy the conversation that follows, and, of course, try to piece together the fragmented memories that constitute your childhood. As Mr. Punch himself is wont to exclaim after beating someone to death with a stick, That's the way to do it! Happy Holidays. started the show and we each kind of wrote up a wish list of things we'd like to discuss. The first thing on my list was this graphic novel, Mr. Punch, because this book came to me as a revelation, a scripture. And maybe I'm overselling it. Maybe this was part of my own uh, adolescent trip. I'm curious to know what you thought of it, having read it for the first time just now. But for me, it was a literal life changer to read this book and to discover what you could do with comics specifically, but by extension, what you could do with, with art. How old were you when you discovered this book? I, I got it when it came out. So I was 18. Okay. Um, an impressionable age. An impressionable age, but also old enough to know what was going on here. I think I, I learned enough about how this shit works to realize that when you say how this shit works, what shit are we talking about? The art shit. The art shit. How yeah. this art shit works. Art, magic, religion, philosophy, <laughs> the whole shebang. And I'm, I'm not saying I know how all that shit works. I'm just saying I knew enough at that time <laughs> to know that something was going on. Whatever yeah. evolving understanding you have of this shit, that book arrived right. at a perfect place in time to affect that evolving understanding. Exactly. It had quite an effect on me. You see, I think that you and I are always going to have a different response to it simply based on where we encounter it in life. So I've read Neil Gaiman now for decades. I'm trying to think what the first thing of his was. Sandman, probably? No, actually, I think before that I read, um, what is, is that book? called underground or underworld neverwhere neverwhere yeah okay not even close but yeah you knew which book i was talking about yeah um i think that might have been the first book of his i read but uh you know i'm i'm only reading this now as a as a grizzled uh grizzled old prospector yeah fair enough that however is not me trying to weasel out of saying that i think it is a great book because i think it's a great book you know the question that people have, like, how do you know whether something is art or not, right? Right. Uh, I have the slightest idea. And I find that aesthetics, uh, like aesthetic theory that attempts to be a normative, aesthetic theory telling you how something can have value, I think that's a sucker's game, trying to play that oh, game. Oh, yeah. Uh, and for me, 
it's a feeling. There's this kind of feeling I get that it's hard to put in words, but it's this feeling that like if I'm in an art gallery and I'm standing before a painting that is doing it for me. Right. There's a feeling in that moment of fullness that is not exhausted by the immediate stimulus, but an emotion that kind of goes on forever. A feeling of um, not just fullness, but depth and breadth, volume, immense size. I'm not expressing this well, but then again, I don't know if I could without being a poet, which I'm not. It's a feeling, you know, it's a feeling I get listening to music that is really connecting with me, this mm -hmm. feeling of more. It's a feeling that goes with a kind of a childhood feeling where you would have a picture book and you would stare at the pictures for hours. You know what I mean? Like there's a book by Ronald Briggs called Father Christmas, which is my favorite all-time Christmas book. It is a book about fa imagining Father Christmas as this kind of English workingman circa 1940, like that kind of vintage. And Christmas is just the longest work day of the year for him. And so he's just sort of like grumpy about it, you know, and it shows him in his house before he heads out, which looks like a English workingman's cottage. You know, he puts out milk for the cat and puts out some food for the dog and makes himself a nice pot of tea before he gets in his sleigh. And then, and then he's, you know, flying through fucking rainstorms and shit. And he's like, Ugh, weather. He's like grumpy about everything. I fucking loved that book. And every single panel, it was basically like a comic. I mean, it's like sequential panels. Uh, and I fucking loved that book. And as a kid, would just stare at each one of these panels. Each one was like a little jeweled window into something beautiful. And the feeling I would get at the panel just unfolding depths. Yeah, it's a depths world. Depths of color, depths of form, depths of world. And when you're a kid, you can just do that for hours, stare at panels of comics or stare at pictures and picture books. And the thing that keeps you staring is that feeling of more, of dimensions opening up. And that is still the feeling I get when I encounter something that I think of as art, something that does the art thing in my head is the art that makes me feel that way still. And I have that feeling reading Mr. Punch. And it's actually much more the paintings or the illustrations. I mean, it's a multimedia or mixed media visual presentation. Yeah, so, it's a lot of photography. and yeah, yeah, photographs and paintings and drawings and like multiple layers and some uh, of... Acetates. They're layered like, in some... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like layered transparencies. I don't know technically how he does it, but that's part of the dreamlike feel of this book, how visually it is constantly moving in and out of a kind of a sharp focus of photography and towards something much more abstract. And I can stare at each panel and did while I was preparing for the show. I did not do the research that I normally like to do, um, partly just because of the way my life is this year. But also at a certain point, I was like, this book is enough. You know, yeah. each panel of this book is enough. I almost feel like we could do a show about each panel of this book. Mm -hmm. 
Like, there's a whole other text in the pictures, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. and so, like, you know, you told me recently there was an audio book of the Neil Gaiman Sandman series. And I'm like, what? Like, that sounds like a joke. Like, how do you do an audio book of something that is so richly visual? But uh, you were like, yeah, but not all the art in the Sandman series is equally good, which is quite true. But here, the art is of such a high level this is a piece of art that has, as you put it to me in one of our communications, a high degree of medium specificity. It couldn't be something other than what it is. You couldn't adapt this as a as an audio book or you couldn't get rid of the visual component of it without getting rid of what this art is. What it is, yeah. But then, it, but then again, you couldn't get rid of the story either because uh, the two work together with uncommon intimacy. Right. Anyway, so those are some preliminary feelings. I mean, those are just feelings I had around the book, like, I guess, answering the basic question. So did you like it? Yeah, I liked it. I had a very particular kind of liking for it, which is this feeling of encountering something that has that kind of depth, that, right. that ability to unfold itself infinitely. The full title for the record is The Tragical Comedy or Comical Tragedy of Mr. Punch. And for those of you who know Neil Gaiman, but may not be familiar with this particular project, it does not exhibit the fantastical elements that you, you we've come to expect from Neil Gaiman's work. It's not about a boy being raised by ghosts, like in the Graveyard Book. It's not about the gods of the old world coming to America like American gods. It's not about the king of dreams. It's at least on its surface, a realistic story a childhood story, a story about the author, the narrator's childhood. And I get a very strong autobiographical feeling from it, although, of course, I can't say whether it is autobiographical. It's certainly made to feel that way. And yet, and yet, just beneath the surface, and this comes through very clearly in the art, just beneath the surface, there is a swirling vortex of fantasy going on. It really is about how magic, real magic, exists in between things, in the way that things encounter one another rather than in the things themselves. The book is basically a grown man trying to remember his childhood, which he remembers only in a fragmented form as we all do. And he's trying to put these fragments of memory together to form a coherent story to know what was going on in his family back then. Some dark shit was going on. And he's making mistakes. He's, you're getting the sense that he's not getting, maybe not getting the chronology of things right, the actual sequences of events right. But in his effort to construct a memory that may not at all reflect the facts. He is nevertheless touching on something that's more real than just an account of the facts would have given you. At least that's how I see it. Like, I'll give you an example. Well, before we get into examples, we should just say a little bit about the story. So yeah. it's a first person narrative. The narrator is telling this story about when he was a kid, when he was seven years old, and then later on when he was eight, he would go and stay with his grandparents. The first time he goes to stay with his maternal grandparents, who are named Arthur and Ruby, he goes and stays with them in South Sea, where they live, in England. And while he's there, he sees his first Mr. Punch show in the most surreal 
way you could imagine. Mr. Punch being, of course, the famous traditional British puppet play, Punch and Judy, right? So he sees his first Punch and Judy show. And the Punch and Judy puppet play becomes a kind of leitmotif throughout the story. And in fact, becomes kind of the key to understanding the whole thing. Um, So the book, the entire graphic novel alternates between scenes from the narrator's childhood and scenes from the famous Punch and Judy puppet play. And then later on, he goes to live with his paternal grandparents and his grandfather, who is not named a check. It's funny. Never, I know. Yeah. I don't I, think he's I named. I went through this yeah. book twice trying to find his name, yeah. but I think very deliberately we never find his we name. We find his name. We don't find his Arthur name. Arthur is the name of the other one who right. takes the boy fishing in the first part of the story. The maternal but, grandfather. Yeah, the other, the, the paternal grandfather, we don't learn his name, but this man was a successful grocer. He owned some grocery stores, but in his retirement, he's opened up an arcade in the British sense of like a, a kind of little tiny little indoor amusement park, I guess, yeah. um, in Portsmouth in England. But it's just too far away from the boardwalk to be successful. So it's just a rundown place. It's a failed project. You can see nobody goes. Uh, and the boy goes to stay with this grandfather and, and his grandmother while his sister's being born. Because at first there's something about how he may have some contagious illness that they don't want the baby to catch. I also, this is pure speculation, but I've read that Neil Gaiman uh, was raised in a Scientology, um, what a Scientological household. Uh, uh-huh. and, uh, and I know that it's very important in Scientology that babies be born in silence so that other kids in the house are sent away during that time. I don't wow, know if that's I know true. That. I don't know if yeah. that's true. But anyways, he's sent to his paternal grandparents while his sister's being born. And during that time, his grandfather takes him to that arcade and he kind of gets to hang out with adults, right? Because he's just surrounded by his grandfather, his grandmother, and also his great uncle, Morton, who suffers from kyphosis, right? He seems to be a hunchback. So the boy is on the periphery of this adult scene and gets to see some very disturbing things involving his grandfather, specifically his grandfather and one of the features one of the attractions in the arcade a mermaid who sits all day in a tank of water on a rock obviously at first a fake mermaid but at the end there's this hint that she might have been a real mermaid so the boy is trying to piece together what was going on between his grandfather and the mermaid what's going on in his family it's a story about dark family secrets not coming to light but revealing themselves partially to the narrator it ends in a particularly dark and I think tremendously tragic kind of note that really affected me again when I read it this time. And it's a story about loss of innocence. It's a story about coming of age. It's a story about disillusionment. And it's a story about Mr. Punch, the main character of the Punch and Judy show, who, according to the narrator, teaches us lessons of death and time. So we can't talk about this graphic novel without also talking about Punch and Judy. Now, one thing that I find kind of cool about this book is how it's about memory. It's about the adult narrator's attempt to piece together an episode from his childhood, which is you get the feeling almost like the master key to this guy's life, or that he feels that it would be if he only can remember it, if he can get back to the truth of that moment. But there are multiple ambiguities. Ambiguities abound on multiple levels, and... 
you as a reader have no faith whatsoever that he's got what he came for, what he was looking for, that he's no closer to the truth, that he just has these unreliable memories that he, he keeps shuffling through them like an old deck of cards. And one of the things that I think is really cool about the book, as particularly the visual style, is how Dave McKean created a visual style that faithfully represents the peculiar slipperiness of memory. Yeah. You know how it is like when you're trying really hard to remember something like say you're in love with somebody and you've been separated by circumstances and you're trying to remember that person's face. And the harder you try to remember their face, the more it becomes kind of vague. Mm -hmm. Like the tighter you grasp, the more it sort of runs through your fingers, as I believe Princess Leia put it to Darth Vader. <laughs> and yet every now and then a memory will detonate and not even necessarily a memory of something happening or some narrative event, but just an angle of a person's face like the way a light would fall on your lover's cheekbone at a certain hour of the afternoon or something like that. You get a facet of that longed for memory image that becomes hallucinatorily real. Like it's there. It's just photorealistic and perfect. And those things, however, are not easily repeatable. You can't just make your brain do that on command. And you're in this situation where you're trying to recapture memories. You're sort of swimming between layers, between that vaguer layer and those moments of where it's almost like a shaft of light penetrating the gloom, you know, the, those moments of sudden clarity. Total recall, yeah. Yeah, and the, and the visual style here where... McKeon has created multiple layers of images, some of them photographs and some of them ink washes or, or drawings. He uses a lot of different techniques. And the way these are layered on one another and also as you your eyes move from one panel to another, successive panels might be in completely different media. The result of that is that you are swimming through different layers of focus and resolution. You're a little bit like Alice in when she's falling down the rabbit hole and these kind of random objects are just all around her, right? Yeah. His photography focuses a lot on discarded objects. It feels like you're wandering, exploring an old attic. That's how the yes. aesthetic of the book looks. Absolutely. So this idea of a fragmentariness of little pieces all over the place that don't really add up to something, but it's like, yeah, it's like wandering through an old attic. It's all kinds of random shit. And you can feel that this is all someone's life, but you could never piece it back together. And yet mm -hmm. there's no better expression of the unicity and wholeness of someone's life than that, right? It's like, mm. it's both complete and irremediably fragmentary at the same time, like mm -hmm. Heraclitus's writings, right? So, but yeah, yeah, yeah I get it's it. Like, it's like you walk through a miscellany of objects. I mean, imagine, for example, that you're, going through the basement of, or the attic of a great aunt who's passed on and you have to clear out her place and figure out what to do with all this stuff. And some of these things you recognize and some of these things you don't. 
you know, but above it all is a feeling like what is the question to which all of these different objects are the answer? Right. That's, that's perfectly put. That's exactly it. What is the question to which this is the answer? Mm-hmm. So we're getting the answer. We just don't know the question. It's like the old Douglas Adams 42 business, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that kind of sums up what I think I meant earlier by how this shit works. <laughs> That's kind of what art does, isn't it? It gives us the answer, but leaves the question to us. Hmm. Yeah. And as you were mentioning, the book has incredible medium specificity in the Greenberg sense that it couldn't have been anything but a comic. I mean, what better when you think about it, obviously? I mean, Proust did wonders on memory with In Search of Lost Time, but there's something about the comics medium that lends itself to a treatment of memory better than the novel or even cinema would, in a sense, because comics are made up of snapshots of tiny little slices of time. And that's kind of how our memory works. We remember little slices, right? Little fragments. How did your day go? Okay, let me tell you. I'm seeing a series of images. I'm not seeing how one image became the next. I'm not seeing the in-betweens. I'm seeing the various moments that put together, like in a photo album, gives you a picture of my day but there's so much missing there. There's so much that I leave out. And yet there's a truth I get from just accepting the fragments. There's a truth I get from that that I wouldn't get if I insisted on the chronological sequence of things. The book's opening is a great place to start because it begins with a memory from the narrator's eighth year in this world. He was seven years old and he went to stay with his maternal grandparents, the ones whose names we know, Arthur and Ruby. Early, early in the morning, his grandfather takes him fishing on the beach and the boy gets bored. So he goes wandering and his, his grandfather tells him, don't go too far. And later on, we're told that, what is it? The path of memory is neither straight nor safe. And we travel down it at our own risk, which I think is a beautiful little foreshadowing there. But the boy goes wandering off on the beach And what does he see in the distance at this early hour? I mean, it's still dark. It's so early. What does he see but a red and white striped little Mr. Punch, Punch and Judy tent, a puppet play on the beach, on this desolate beach. There's no one there but him. And he walks up to it and it's just sitting there. And all of a sudden, the puppets come out. Mr. Punch appears and Judy appears. And Mr. Punch says... There aren't any boys and girls in his squeaky voice, only him, pointing to the boy, the narrator. And Judy says, ah, well, that can't be helped, Mr. Punch. Even if there's only one of them, it's started now, and it can't be stopped. Not even if the devil and all his crocodiles came up from hell to stop it. And the play begins, and the first scene happens. We'll talk about the play in a minute. And then the boy gets scared, and he runs away, and there's a beautiful shot of the boy running away from the the tent and the winds picked up and you can see that the flaps of the tent have gone up and you can see that there's no puppeteer. And, and you can see the the little baby puppet that gets thrown out of the tent. You can still see it lying there on the, on the sand. On the sand. Right. Wonderful image because it's just like, if you're like, okay, he imagined the whole thing and now we're getting a kind of reverse angle distance shot that shows us the objective reality. Well, that objective reality includes a little baby puppet that somehow got 
thrown down onto the sand. Right, exactly. And so we could say, like, when I read this at first, like, oh, that's cool, because I have memories like that, too. I have memories that don't add up. I have a memory of my neighbors changing into gorillas. This is a clear memory. Of course, I'm mixing memories or something's happening here. He's mixing up two memories. He saw a puppet show and he's linking it to that morning he went fishing with his grandfather. And chronologically, realistically or naturalistically speaking, he might be wrong. But the way that he remembers it tells us something true about the nature of Punch and Judy and specifically the nature about Mr. Punch. It tells us something real that if he just told us, well, at some point I also saw Punch and Judy show and that's an interesting right. play because it's a reflection on death and blah, blah, blah. And then moved on like that. That wouldn't get to it. You need to express it this way in order to open the door to what follows. Also, it's possible that, of course, it's a Neil Gaiman comic. It's perfectly possible that Mr. Punch is a kind of supernatural creature, that there was that puppet play on the beach yeah. that day, that there is a special connection between the narrator and this character. I just love the ambiguity of that, but it's a full ambiguity. It's not a an ambiguity that feels like something's lacking. It's giving us a fragment that is better than the full thing. It's like I keep thinking about my comment there in that Heraclitus episode that that the fragmentary nature of Heraclitus's work is what completes his work so that it's more complete than if we had the whole thing. Oh yeah. That's kind of what I was trying to get at. And I don't, oh, I don't and know I if think I'm getting that, into it now. Yeah. No, I love that. And actually I think that this gets back to the medium specificity of this story. The fact that it's comics and couldn't be anything else. There's a book that I haven't reread in literally decades. So my, memory of it will probably be very imprecise. But Scott McCloud wrote a book called Understanding Comics. Right. I don't know if you ever read it. I did. Yeah. And he argues that the most important thing about comics, the thing that makes comics comics, is the sequential nature of it, that you have successive panels and that it is the tension between the panels, the way that succession of panels creates a narrative. Like you can show a picture of somebody wearing a hat and then in the next panel, they're holding their hat and this implies movement. Arguably, what's the most important aspect of the comic medium or the most important part of the page are the gutters between the panels because it's the gutters that set off these panels from one another and imply transition. They imply tensions that exist between these panels. It doesn't have to be chronological because you can also cut from one moment to another just like you can in a film. But it's actually... As I recall, I might be simply uh, imputing these ideas to Scott McCloud, but as I recall, he's saying something about the medium of comics, which is a little bit similar to what you say about the medium of film. You say the most important thing about a film is the cut. What makes a film a film is the cut. And you can say that what makes comics comics are those gutters, the articulations between panels that establish relations between them. And that those can be chronological or non-chronological. They can have sense or they can not have sense. But I can't imagine a medium that works better for getting at the peculiarities of memory right. than a medium that works like that, where it's all about the gaps between like vivid images and gaps between those vivid images that will always remain gaps, but they nevertheless unfold a fullness that goes beyond what any one of the panels is going to give you. And that's saying a lot for comics, because memory is quite 
an important feature of existence. <laughs> yes, I would say <laughs> and, so. And so there's something about that. I mean, it's telling us something about, yes, the medium specificity of this work and the preeminence of the gutter in comics tells us something about memory, right? At the same, you can reverse it. We're learning something about memory here. And now I'm thinking back on that post I did a few weeks ago about the untimely, because I think it's the same thing. I was in that post on Patreon, I was trying to talk about Deleuze's concept of the untimely. And my example of it was how after you've gone through a phase in your life, you don't remember everything that happened during that time, obviously. You just remember a few things, but you get this mood and the mood doesn't manifest to you as the mood you have now about that time, it manifests itself to you as the mood of that time. I don't know if this makes any sense to you. Uh, some people seem to know what I was talking about. If I remember my time in Montreal, it has an atmosphere, an ambiance that I wasn't aware of then. But that ambiance isn't something I'm projecting now. It, it was there then. It was, I was disconscious of it. It was the untimely aspect of that time that now that it's dead, I can see it. Whereas it, when I was in it, I was caught up in the moods of previous times, right? So like hmm. there's, there's something about how memory by breaking time up into these little snapshots allows us to go and recapture the essence of an event. We get it because memory's fragmentary. If we were like computers with just the entire record, the entire kind of database of the past in us, we wouldn't be able to access the, the real, the, the kind of eternal part of each chapter of our lives, the chapteriness, mm. the chapteriness of each chapter of our lives, that which makes it a chapter. So you're saying that the gutter matters in life as well as in comics. Yes, that's where the Holy Grail is, in the gutter. <laughs> Remember? Oh, you just <laughs> blew my mind. It's the beer can in the gutter. Right. We're back at the trash stratum. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, this is a call back to a show we did years ago on the trash stratum. We talked about how Phil Kedick keeps using the figure of the beer can in the gutter as his image of the Holy Grail. That which is discarded. I mean, it's all connected, right? The beer can in the gutter is Philip K. Dick's way of understanding that famous utterance of Christ, which is not just in the, well, it's actually something he gets from Isaiah, I think. It's an old biblical utterance. Show me the stone that the builders have rejected for that is the cornerstone. That which is off in the gutter, that which is off stage, off screen, that's where the focus should go if you want to find it. It. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I dig that.
So I don't assume that most or even many of our listeners know what a Punch and Judy show is. I confess I didn't really before. You're such a Brit, though. Yeah, but I've never been to a seaside resort. My mom has a horror of such things, so I was never brought to a seaside resort. I never saw a Punch and Judy show. Lived a very deprived life. So it wasn't until a few years ago when I read a kind of a fantasy novel slash police procedural, it imagines an occult department of the London police force that handles magical crimes. And there's a magical crime being committed by a poltergeist. It imagines that Mr. Punch is in fact an occupying spirit, a malevolent spirit that will inhabit people's bodies and twist their features into the shape of Mr. Punch's face with the beaky nose and the jutting chin. And so these people, once the spirit leaves them, their face just like falls off their skull and they die because this inhabiting spirit just twists people into its own form and then kills them. But then while this inhabiting spirit is inhabiting a human host, they commit violent acts by going around and beating people to death with sticks. I can't remember the name of the novel. Maybe one of our listeners has read it and can recall it to my memory. But in any event, I remember I was reading this. And I was like, what the fuck is any of this about? And I had to like look it up and be like, oh, it's about this character, Mr. Punch. That was my introduction to Mr. Punch. Didn't know anything about it before and had to learn about all the various stock characters and stock situations that one encounters in a Punch and Judy show while preparing to record this episode. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what a Punch and Judy show is. Sure. And my, my knowledge is limited here. I think there's a pretty extensive literature uh, out there about Punch and Judy. Mr. Punch is a British iteration of the Commedia dell'arte character, Pulcinella, who came up in our Castrati episode. Yes. As a very important figure there, a liminal trickster figure. And so it was in the Restoration when Charles II took the crown took power back from Oliver Cromwell and theater was allowed to happen again. That's when the first mention of a Punch and Judy show happens. That's in the diaries of Samuel Pepys. 1660, he saw a Punch and Judy show at Covent Garden in London and writes briefly about it. That's the first mention of the play on record. And from there, it became a very important part of British culture, I think. I think that, I mean, I've, I don't know, but... It seems when you read uh, British novels and, and books that it seems like it's fairly common when you're at a seaside resort to see a Punch and Judy show. It's kind of like a staple of British life in some way. And it's a very strange fucking play. Uh, uh, at first, it was Punch and Joan. But because Mr. Punch's voice needs to be done with a little instrument called a swatchel, basically, it, sound, it sounds like you're talking through a kazoo. Because of that, Joan was so hard to pronounce with that, because you have to keep, the puppeteer needs to keep the instrument in his mouth throughout the play and basically just speak with different sides of his mouth for the different characters. Whenever Mr. Punch speaks, he uses the swatchel. And whenever the other characters speak, he uses the other side of his mouth. Because it was so hard to say Joan, they changed the name to Judy. Another change that happened is when the first, Samuel Pepys writes about the play, which was performed by an Italian puppeteer when he saw it, it was string puppets. But eventually in England, they switched over to hand puppets. And just on Wikipedia, I read that that was because it allowed for more violence. 
because you could wouldn't get the stick tangled up in the strings. <laughs> Mr. Punch could be more violent with hand puppets. And it is a very violent play. It's basically the story is simple as, as hell. It's like Mr. Punch is this clownish trickster Lord of Misrule kind of figure. And he stays on the puppeteer's right hand throughout the play. And the puppeteer's left hand animates a succession of characters whom Mr. Punch systematically beats to death with a stick. So the first thing that happens is that Mr. Punch comes on the scene and then his wife, Judy, shows up or his girlfriend, Judy, or we assume he's his wife. Judy comes over and entrusts their baby to Mr. Punch while she goes out shopping or whatever. And Mr. Punch then throws the baby off the stage, killing it. And then Judy comes back, gets mad at him, and they have a fight. And then Mr. Punch beats Judy to death with his stick. And then the constable comes to arrest Mr. Punch for having committed this crime. And Mr. Punch beats the constable to death with his stick. And then it depends. There's all kinds of variations on this play. There's no, obviously, there's no official or canonical script. So sometimes at this point, the crocodile, who is basically a demon from hell, an envoy of Satan, comes over to punish Mr. Punch. And Mr. Punch either escapes from him or uh, beats him with his stick to death. And then the doctor comes because Mr. Punch got hurt by the crocodile. The doctor comes to help Mr. Punch and Mr. Punch beats the doctor to death with a stick. And then the a judge called the Beetle, B-E-A-D-L-E, the Beetle comes to hang Mr. Punch and Mr. Punch tricks the judge into hanging himself. And then finally the devil comes and Mr. Punch beats the devil to death with a stick and then proclaims that all the boys and girls can do whatever they want from now on because the devil's dead. That's essentially the story. <laughs> and every time that he kills somebody by beating them with his stick, he says... That's the way to do it. Right. In his high, shrill, weird voice. Yes. That's the way to do it. Exactly. And Which is, I've decided is going to be my new thing. Like, I'm just going to say that in that tone of voice. That's <laughs> uh, going to be my catchphrase. And uh, my kids are coming home soon to stay with us for a couple months. And I think they're going to love this. Oh, I'm sure they'll be big fans. Yeah. In the graphic novel, he sees multiple iterations of the play. And every time the kids are just sitting there angry and hating Mr. Punch. And the puppeteer who, who does the play has a sidekick called the Bottler, whose job it is to collect change from the audience after the play, but also to kind of like uh, encourage the children to cheer for Mr. Punch and taking Mr. Punch's side and saying, isn't Mr. Punch great? While the kids are basically... Just like sullen and bored, sullen pissed and, off. Yeah. I actually saw a Punch and Judy show in French <laughs> in Montreal. But they did it because, you know, in England, the, the show's been sanitized, supposedly. They enjoy a good puppet in Quebec. Oh, yeah. They like a puppet. Yeah. Um, the, the show and the Victorian era became... It became a children's show at that time. Before that, it was a show for adults. It became a children's show in the Victorian era, as so many things did, and it got neutered. But when I saw it in Montreal, unsurprisingly, the people who put it together decided to do the original, brutal, horrible version. My youngest daughter was too young to know what was going on. She was a baby. But Delphine was totally riveted, and she was... Yeah, she was exactly like the kids in the book. She was completely unimpressed with this horrible monster <laughs> that wins at the, in the end. 
and that's the kind of leitmotif of, of Gaiman's story. And the weird thing is that the events in his in the story he's remembering mimic or mirror the events in the play, where right. the grandfather becomes essentially a kind of punch figure yeah. in reality. Um, yeah. Yeah. The climax of the book is the child wandering in on a quarrel among adults where his grandfather, one is given to understand, has had an affair with the lady who plays the mermaid in the seaside attraction and has gotten the girl pregnant. And he is having words with this girl and she insults him and in fury he picks up a slat of wood and beats her, hits her in the stomach and hits her in the face. In so doing, one is given to imagine quite possibly kills the child that she's carrying in her belly. Well, at that very moment, the boy who's seeing all this from he's hidden away in the corner watching all this and he happens to knock the doll, the baby doll off because he's in the, he's actually in the, the proscenium. He's in the tent. I don't tent. remember that. Yeah. At the very moment where the grandfather beats the mermaid with a stick, the boy happens to knock the baby doll off the stage and it falls on the ground. That intimation is that because the girl wouldn't get the abortion that he wanted to pay for her, so she he 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 does it that way. Right. Horrible event, like just terrible yeah. and dark. Yeah, very very, very dark. dark. Um, and very effectively pulled off, I think, uh, in the way that the story's told. Again, you're never told that the mermaid's pregnant. You're never told that the grandfather's having an affair. All this is just in the gutter, right? It's all yeah, stuff exactly. that you as a reader have to pick up and put together in, in a beautiful way. It's not that it's hard to pick up on. You see it, but it's not said, and that's important. As a child, he wasn't privy to that information. So he's giving us only the memories, but the memories tell us a lot, right? The fragments tell us a tremendous lot, not just about his grandfather, but about his grandfather's bizarre, magical, mysterious relationship to the Punch and Judy show. That, right. And to the Punch and Judy man who was running the show. Who's um, named Mr. Swatchel. Right. Which Swatchel. is also the name of that thing you put in your mouth to get the funny voice for Mr. Punch. Yes. And we can get back to him. And there's a lot of unreliable narrator stuff here because, you know, everything you see is through the eyes of the child as reconstructed in memory. And so you only can see what the child can see. And so you have to put together the implications. It's implied that the woman is pregnant and it's implied that the grandfather is trying to pay for her abortion and implied that she won't take it, implied that he beats her and causes her to abort her child. The child who's seeing these things can't know the import of all these things they're seeing. So we see fragments in these in the panels. And as you say, all of that implication is in the gutter. Yeah. One of the things that this story does very skillfully to imply that unreliability of narrator and narrative is the way that the presiding spirit of Mr. Punch kind of infects the action. So we've just talked about how the grandfather in the climax of this story does what Mr. Punch does. He beats his lover and he kills a baby. And there are other signs. Other synchronicities. There yeah. are, yeah, there are other synchronicities like that every morning the grandfather eats sausages 
that his grandmother would prepare for him, which of course sausages, I shouldn't say of course, I only know this because I just looked it up, but like sausages play a role. One of the sane affair, one of the incidents that often happens in a Punch and Judy show. There's like a catalog of incidents that can happen in a Punch and Judy show, but don't have to. It's As you said, it's not like there's a written script somewhere that everybody's following. It's more like a, a template to make a show. And one of the things that can happen in such a show is that the clown Joey leaves a bunch of sausages for Mr. Punch to look after, which of course attracts the crocodile. The crocodile comes to eat the sausages and then Punch and the crocodile fight. And so there's this little synchronicity, like, oh, the grandfather eats sausages. Yeah, another one is uh, Uncle Morton, who is the narrator's hunchback uncle. Grandfather's brother. brother. Right. The narrator as an adult is trying to figure out what made him that way. Like, did he get polio? Why was he disabled that way? Why was he so stooped? And, and he hears different stories. His grandmother says he had a disease, but then he hears from another relative that he was thrown down the stairs. And then another relative comes in and says, no, 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 he was thrown out the window. And, uh, yeah. and one of the most beautiful synchronicities is that climactic scene on multiple levels. I mean, the mermaid in the arcade about halfway through the book, the narrator, the boy, has a dream. And in his dream, he dreams of the doctor from Mr. Punch cutting open Pretty Polly, who's Mr. Punch's mistress. And of course, that's a premonition of the fact that the mermaid, Pretty Polly, like Mr. Punch's mistress, will undergo an abortion. Mm. It's so, so there are all kinds of synchronicities between the play right. in, in brilliant subtle ways, synchronicities between the play and the event. So you're wondering, well, is he just, is that what you're getting at? That he's just kind of reshaping his childhood in light of the Punch and Judy show? Well, actually, where I was going with that is to say that I think a lesser creator would have just tried to make the grandfather into a Punch-possessed figure or like a Punch analog. But that's not what he does. That Punch attributes are distributed across several characters. Exactly. Morton, the... Punchback uncle, the grandfather, Mr. Swatchel, the uh, not quite human, almost seems like a demonic figure or, a, or, or an otherworldly figure, looks like the devil. I think um, he is the devil. I can prove it, <laughs> but I'll do it after well, he's the Well, he's the Punch and Judy man, but whatever else he is, like you have these three characters and in a way, they all seem like three reflections of some substrate, some underlying character. They all kind of look the same. In fact, I had to reread some passages just to keep straight whether it was the grandfather, Morton, or Mr. Swatchel, who right. was at any point talking to the child. And they're, they all kind of look similar. And depending on the angle or how the characters being rendered sometimes is confusing, which is, of course, how it is with children. I remember being a child and being confused whether I was talking to one adult or another. Yeah. They all kind of were interchangeable past a certain point. And it seems like rather than reflecting then some character being a sort of heavy-handed, leaden symbol of Mr. Punch, it's more like Mr. Punch is a force field of influence. And that influence tugs at Every character that we encounter in this memory story. Yeah. Yeah. You that's know, really it's, interesting. It's actually a little bit like that novel that I was mentioning before that the name of which I can't remember, where Punch is just a discorporate entity, a spirit that makes things happen. And actually, when you th think about it, the 
boredom and indifference and act of hostility of the very few children who show up and watch this Punch and Judy show, that might be a clue because you get the impression that the Punch and Judy show happens whether or not anybody wants it to happen, whether or not there's call for it, whether or not there's a stable institution in a society by which it can manifest in this world. Like you almost get the feeling that the sort of English tradition of the striped little tent at a seaside, you know, with the Toby dog and all the rest of it, like you kind of get the feeling that's how Mr. Punch has found an outlet into this world. But Mr. Punch is somehow a spirit that transcends any particular manifestation. Yes. And and the book is about that, is about this force field of Mr. Punchness. Yeah. And you can interpret it in so many different ways. In one level, if you want a kind of psychological interpretation of this graphic novel, you could say, well, it's the story about a boy learning that the bad guys sometimes win, or that at least that some problems don't get solved. This world is a frightening place, objectively. It's not frightening from a perspective of ignorance. It is in itself. If you were to see it all, you would be frightened it. He's at that age, right? Seven, eight, when you suddenly learn that your parents are going to die. You suddenly, it suddenly dawns on you in a real way that your parents are going to die, that you're going to die. <laughs> or that you're going to die, yeah. yeah. Or that awful things could happen to you, no matter how special you feel. <laughs> you know, you oh, are God. never so special that you will be spared a monstrous, tragic development. And that's kind of what Mr. Punch teaches us, right? That he kills even the devil. The devil, strangely, in this beautiful, ironic way, the devil in Mr. Punch is a hero. He comes to finally, like, okay, the devil's coming for Mr. Punch now. There's no way he can win. And he he kills even the devil, which means he can only be one person. But I want to save that a little. Okay, this is the big reveal. I have have a theory. I have a theory. I don't know if it's going to be the end, but... On another level, the Mr. Punch figure is also a perfect example of the trickster in terms that Hansen sets out in The Trickster and the Paranormal. He's a figure of liminality and Mm anti-structure. He's the crack in the facade. He's the one element, the one free radical that gives the lie to the structure, which would otherwise assert itself as absolute, right? He's Mm -hmm. the rift in things. He's the force of chaos at the bottom of the world. He is what is truly eternal. And that's something that is built in. I think that that realization, that the touching of that force is built into what that eight-year-old realizes when he realizes that tragedy can happen even to him. It's the realization of the aleatory, chaotic, and contingent nature of things, which even if later on you develop a philosophy that negates that, it nevertheless remains something to be negated. And something you still have to negate after you've negated it is basically something that's real and that you can't negate, right? And it doesn't matter how much you want to assert the idea that there's some fundamental, beautiful order to the world. The very fact that you must assert it means that it's not just all beautiful order. 
that there is at least room for doubt. And in a, in a system that is perfectly ordered, the doubt would never come up to begin with. So the seed of doubt, the seed of fear, the seed of the, the root of evil, the problem of evil, that's what Mr. Punch is about. And I, we could talk about that obviously for years. But also as a symbol, I think Mr. Punch can stand as a symbol of a type of evil that's reserved to the yang masculine male side of our species, hmm. the savagery of men. Um, yes. And also something that every boy has to encounter and deal with at some point. Hmm. Do you know the song, The Beast in Me, which is by Nick Lowe? No. Which was covered memorably by Johnny Cash, which is how I first got to know the song. That song to me is a powerful song that I listen to when I'm in a very melancholy frame of mind, The Beast in Me. And it's a song that if you're honest and you're a man, you will recognize yourself in this song, just about that darkness, that the violence and cruelty, a specifically masculine kind of violence and cruelty, a beast in me that lives in me. And now what, you know, like you might be listening to this and being like, no, I'm, I'm not like that at all. No. Let's hope you're not like that in your day to day. Let's hope you're not like that in your, your conduct at work and with your family and so on. But you are that sometimes in your dreams. Right. And the first line of this song, the beast in me is caged by frail and metal bars. You know, yeah. frail and metal bars that we keep the beast locked up. And Mr. Punch is that beast let loose in the world. You know what you just said to me about that moment where contingency and evil, death, the possibility of evil becomes palpable to a child. I have a very specific memory of that, not mm. of that. Well, it was of that breaking in on me, but the reason it did was because I was at school when I was a kid, maybe five or six years old. I was in kindergarten and there was a kid who was like maybe a, I, I remember her as being a year or so older than me, but I'm not sure. It was a long time ago, obviously. But I was there when that awareness dawned fully upon that kid. And that kid was crying inconsolably hmm. because it just hit her all at once, the reality of death, that she would die. It was inescapable. And that she, there was nothing she could do about it. And she couldn't know what death was, but, but she knew that it meant the cessation of what she was now. And what I remember most was how inconsolable she was, that all these other kids were grouped around. They were like, well, yeah, but it's okay because that won't happen for a long time. Or, well, it happens to everybody. I mean, I guess you just have to get used to it. And I remember all of these half-hearted assurances just bouncing off of this kid's horror, the bottomless, the fathomless horror that this kid was immersed in at that moment. And I remember that was deeply disturbing to me, deeply unsettling, because I realized there was no answer to this girl. This girl wanted an answer to this crisis, and there was none. And I was like, oh, shit. And then that put the horror in me. I remember going through that horror. Uh, my dad had bought me a book about one of those like cheap 
illustrated hardcover books you used to get for like five bucks and it was on a specific topic. Like I had one about monsters and I had one about mysteries, the greatest mysteries of all time. And there was a spread in there about Nostradamus. And there was that famous false quatrain that people have reprinted that's actually cobbled together from different ones that predicts the end of the world in 1999, I think, or 1997. I can't remember. And I read that. And, and Did it I, say anything about 2020? No. The world was long gone by then in his Nostradamus's, in this cobbled together fake quatrain's mind. Turns out the guy was just off by 21 years. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember the sudden... Paul, the, 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 the sudden, it's like a pit opened under me as I imagined the world ending. And it wasn't just the end of the world. It was the end of my world, the end of the, the just the reality of death as an objective part of this whole demented parade we call existence, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, and there's a moment in there uh, where, Neil Gaiman, the narrator, towards the end, he's he goes at the very end of the graphic novel. He goes to a, a Mr. Punch festival at Covent Garden, where on that special day, Mr. Punch is even allowed to read the lesson at church for the congregants, supposedly in England. But anyways, he's wandering around and looking at all these Punch puppets and stuff, and still refuses to put Punch on because Mr. Swatchell, when he was a kid, told him that if once you've put the puppet on, it never comes off. Um, right. So he says, and he gets a presentment too when he of that when he puts on the crocodile puppet and he feels himself transformed. He becomes a crocodile. Yeah, yeah. We should get to his that. arm becomes a crocodile. Which, by the way, all of which sort of implies what I was saying before: this idea that Mister Punch is like this discarnate field of force that finds outlets in the world. The idea, like, hey, you put on Mister Punch, there's no taking him off once you start letting him out into this world, you don't know where that's going to end up. But anyway, I'm sorry I interrupted no, it's you. it's totally Continue. fine. Another memory, though, that I wanted to bring up that for some reason, when you said I have a vivid memory of my childhood uh, about this realization of death, I immediately, my mind immediately went there and it was kind of felt weird at first, but now it makes sense somehow. When I was about eight, my dad took me and my brother and my cousin camping to Lake Phillip. It's a beautiful little lake near Ottawa. We just got a car camping thing. And you know how in these campgrounds, you'll have like a uh, like a little cabin, a little structure somewhere with the showers and toilets in it. So I was, I'd just gone to the bathroom or something, was coming out and I noticed this beautiful spider web on the side of the building. So I went, got closer and looked at it and there was a spider at the center and the spider was, this is what I remember. The spider was devouring a caterpillar and it had eaten its head. And there were like huge globs of black blood dripping from the caterpillar onto the ground as this large spider ate it. And I was horrified, but also, of course, fascinated and I went back to the campground and then my dad was talking about, and then I snuck away and went back and watched the spider eat the entire fucking thing. <laughs> At mm. least that's what I remember. It seems mm. absurd now that a spider would gobble up a caterpillar like that, but that's what I remember. And 
I was filled with a kind of joy at seeing this. Mm. As weird as it is to say it, I couldn't look away. And it was only after that night when I lay in my sleeping bag that the full horror of this thing hit me. It was like, yeah, well, we're all that caterpillar somehow, you know. Sometimes you're the spider, sometimes you're the caterpillar. Yeah, but after you've been the caterpillar, you're not the spider anymore, ever. turn a little bit, though, to think about Punch and Judy not as some sort of trans-temporal or trans-historical entity that manifests contingently in a puppet show or in a spider devouring a caterpillar or whatever. I actually want to think about it as a theatrical spectacle that actually exists and that parents still take their kids to see. I've said on this show that I sometimes get a little tired of the trope of the evil clown or the sinister clown. It's just like everybody says that they're creeped out by the word moist, and everybody says that they're creeped out by clowns. It's like this thing that people say now. It's a say now fair. So like, oh, yeah, aren't clowns creepy? But I remember watching clowns when I was a kid. I remember going to a kid's birthday party that they hired a clown for. I laughed my fucking ass off at that clown. I I, I laughed harder than I can ever remember laughing in my life at that clown. Right. People say clowns are scary, but they're not always scary. Sometimes they're funny. And also, I think it would be easy to sort of say, like, kids don't like the Punch and Judy show. Kids hate the fucking Punch and Judy show. Actually, I don't know. I, You know, if, if we want to kind of darken Mr. Punch, which, of course, Gaiman and McKean are doing in this story, they're presenting Mr. Punch as a very sinister figure. That is a one-sided viewpoint because it's forgetting that actually kids fucking love seeing puppets beating up other puppets. I went on YouTube and watched you know, some Punch and Judy shows of recent vintage. I saw one where, you know, it's somewhat sanitized. So Mr. Punch doesn't kill the baby. He just makes the baby cry. He doesn't beat Judy. Judy yells at him for making the baby cry and then goes to 
fetch the constable and then Mr. Punch beats everybody else up, right? So right. at least we're getting the domestic violence part out of the equation. And regardless of what you think of the more sanitized version of Mr. Punch, nevertheless, the same bits that have been delighting audiences since the mid-17th century, the spectacle of hand puppets like whacking each other, there's a kind of frenetic motion associated with that. It's just, it's just funny. I was cracking up watching it. And the camera would cut back to the reaction of the children and adults. And you see little kids, like four, five, six years old, and they are fucking delighted. They're cracking up. And so am I. It's an entertaining goddamn show. And there's, there's also the side that's funny and delightful and worthy of protection. Like if we are going to go for just like an emo goth picture of Mr. Punch, that's cool and everything. But just so we know, there's also this other size. Yeah, I, I agree with that. On the surface, you're watching this little puppet beat people with a stick and that's funny. But especially in the historical context in which this play evolved, much of its history occurred in a time when it was not only normal, but it was sanctified by law that a man could beat the shit out of his wife and children. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine how violent life was basically until the end of the Second World War and how violent it continues to be for many, many, many children, including many who watch Punch and Judy shows. So right. even though they're laughing... It's not emo goth to point out the realities that this is referring us back to. No. The two e sides. Except, except we should not imagine that the children watching have like, to go with my admittedly uncharitable emo goth analogy, yeah. we don't imagine the children are sitting there looking like fucking Robert Smith from The Cure with like mascara tears streaking down their face as they, as they watch the violence. Like they might be laughing their ass off at the violence. Yeah. And that's the thing that's actually more uncomfortable is the idea that Mr. Punch is both violent and cruel and funny as shit and totally entertaining. Like, yeah. Yeah. there's, you know, I feel like a lot of the art that we talk about on the show gets us up against bothness, where it's sort of like you've got both sides of something that's just hitting you right in the face. And Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, I did not mean that as an argument against your point. On the contrary, I'm just saying that it reveals and conceals just as laughter reveals and conceals, right? Uh, yeah. Nervous laughter is one of the most interesting kind when you laugh at something horrible. It's strange. Comedy and tragedy, of course. That's the whole point, right? The full title, the tragical comedy or comical tragedy. The duality, the yeah. ambiguity the, is right there in the title. As Mr. Swatchell says, it's, what does he say? He says, it's the oldest, greatest, wisest play there is, the oldest play. In other words, Mr. Punch is the drama of existence itself. So is that the big reveal that no. we we're going towards? The big reveal is much more prosaic. It's my interpretation of what Gaiman is trying to tell us about what Punch and Judy means to him. And this is my theory. There's a moment where Mr. Swatchell... So another thing we didn't discuss is the importance of the puppeteer in Punch and Judy culture. Because there's a whole scene, right? There's a whole tradition of Punch and Judy men passing on their puppets to an apprentice and, yeah. and how the puppeteers have to build their own puppets and adapt them. They're very unique and each one is similar, but they're all different. And yeah. It's like a Jedi building his lightsaber. Exactly, like yeah. Carving yeah. your own puppets. Carving your By own, the way, yeah. can I just say, I love that. Punch and Judy men are called professors. 
professors, right? I love, I that. love that. I love that. I was thinking recently about how if you're a Zen teacher, you're a little bit stuck trying to find like a word that connotes respect, like a, an honorific that a student can use. Sensei is the normal one, but I always think that sensei makes you sound like you've got a strip mall karate dojo or something. It just sounds cheesy to me. And I was like, so if we were going to create an honorific for people who are involved in passing along wisdom, whether of a Zen variety or some other variety, somebody who leads like an occult group or something. What would we call, like, master? That sounds like cult shit, right? Makes you sound like you're in a cheesy horror film. The master wishes us to... But how about professor? That's a good honorific to use. If I was the leader of a cult, I would insist that my acolytes refer to me as the professor. Well, you aren't you already that? <laughs> I am, but in this hypothetical future version of myself, I have been thrown out of academia. I get to say they laughed, they laughed at me, but who's <laughs> laughing now? Uh, I you know, I, I would I would be like the equivalent of a um, what do they call a a, pre, a defrocked priest, somebody who is spoken of only in whispers. You know, somebody who's gone all the way over to the dark side. I would hold on to the title of professor. I think it's a slightly sinister honorific that also totally works as an honorific. That's what I'm saying. All of which is to say things wonderful that Punch and Judy performers are called professors. Yeah. And as the narrator intimates towards the end of the book, he, at, at, towards the end, he's, that's what I was trying to get to earlier. He's imagining becoming a punchman or a professor himself. He says, walking through the festive graveyard, I daydreamed about abandoning the life I'd built for myself and becoming a professor. Dreamed of traveling with Mr. Punch from town to town with my burden on my back teaching the children and those with an eye and a mind to see with the lessons of death that went back to the dawn times. So the professor is teaching us something. The suggestion is that the Punch and Judy puppeteer, unlike other maybe puppeteers, is giving us a teaching, a gospel. Yeah. Let's call it yeah. a gospel for the like sake of Like what that argument. little girl who was flipping out in my presence learned. Exactly. She learned a secret of death or a, like a, a learning of death. There's also the other sense of the word to profess, which means to express or to proclaim, right? Right. Pro profession of faith and Christianity is an important thing. So he's also professing something. He's, he's an evangelist of sorts, the professor. So putting that on for size, I kind of went back, read the book, and then I ran into the scene where Mr. Swatchell, who's the professor in this story, tells the boy that although the devil's been taken out of Mr. Punch, of a lot of performances these days, there's always a devil in the Mr. Punch story. Just sometimes he's hard to find. So I'm like, okay, Gaiman's telling us the devil is in the story. And since it's Neil Gaiman, I'm not, I don't mean there's a devil or a symbol of the devil. I mean, Satan is in this story. Right. And in the gutter. In the gutter. Quite literally, actually or more specifically, under the stage. The first page of the book, the opening page, is the proscenium of a stage, of a puppet play stage. So you see a mask of, that's both a mask of tragedy and comedy mixed together. And then there's the moon and something that looks solar. And then you have the stage. And then you don't see, on the first page, you don't see what's under the stage. But if there weren't panels on the lower half of the page, you would see under the stage. But there are other panels that are blocking their view. And then a few pages later... When the narrator is musing on the importance of writing with blood so that you can't lie, 
that initial image of the proscenium, the stage and its underneath part, is repeated. But this time you can see what's underneath the stage, and what's underneath the stage is the devil, a demonic face, because the narrator at that point is talking about the devil. And later on, Mr. Swatchell's talking to the narrator, and he says, you know, I used to be the crocodile. And the boy says, really? He says, yeah, although back then they called us dragons, and we were proud of it. Of course, Satan has been depicted as a dragon. He's the serpent. And the professor keeps mentioning, he says, in the last Queen's time, we used to do it this way. He basically suggesting that he was alive during the Victorian era. Later on, he says, I was there, I was with Mr. Punch long before he came to England and all that. So we get the sense that this Mr. Swatchell is more than just a regular puppeteer, that he may be the devil. And in fact, if you read closely, I would say that it's not totally ridiculous to interpret Mr. Swatchell's relationship with the grandfather as one of soul selling, where the grandfather sold his soul to Mr. Swatchell, nice. and now Mr. Swatchell's nice. coming back to collect, and the grandfather ends up going insane at the end in a beautiful scene. And then if you look at the play itself, you have Mr. Punch, and Mr. Punch's final victim is the devil, which in a dualistic Judeo-Christian frame means that Mr. Punch needs to be God. But God from a very particular perspective, God as that which we should fear, the Old Testament God, not the Old Testament storm God, but the finality of death, the finality of the limitations that God has imposed on the universe itself, which is like Mr. Punch's slapstick, stopping things from ever attaining the level at which he, God, exists. So... And, and then I thought about it. it was like, well, maybe Punch and Judy is the gospel according to Satan, according to the fallen angels who have failed to usurp God and for whom it's like just in like uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost. I mean, the whole point, the whole thing that happens, the intrigue in that poem is that Lucifer rightly sees God as a tyrant who is preventing the angels from being the gods they can be. He's the great limiter, the chasm at the end where nothing can go further, the wall against which everything breaks. Like Moby Dick, like Ahab says, you know, he'll just die against the white wall that is Moby Dick. The white wall is the divine itself, the real itself. So it's in that sense, I think, that we're getting a kind of fifth gospel in Punch and Judy, the kind of shadow side of God. And who could see the shadow side of God better than the devil? If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>